I'm going to teach today out of the 69th Psalm. And I'm glad Jerry read from the 20th Psalm today. And we're going to sing today about one thing that the Psalms say over and over. And they teach us is that the Lord is our help and that we cry out to him and that we should. The psalmist does that. David does that. People throughout the Bible who know the Lord know to do that. I like going back to the Psalms. And I think one reason is, is I just can't figure them out. Now, some of the Psalms take the 23rd Psalm, take the 51st Psalm. And you read those and they're so powerful. And you think, well, why do they throw in to, if you're going to trim down a Bible to something you can put in your pocket, why do they put the New Testament and the Psalms in there? Because if you read the Psalms, you get into the Psalms and sometimes you think the Psalms are hard. Not all of them. Maybe they could have just put half the Psalms in here and this would have been easier. Some of the Psalms are very challenging. And the 69th Psalm, I think, is one of those Psalms in that it, it blesses us, it challenges us, and it also makes us think. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called Reflections on the Psalms. I recommend it, though I recommend it with some caveat that you may need some help with it. And by that, I mean you may need to talk it through with somebody. Because what C.S. Lewis does in his talking about the Psalms is he, at the very beginning, he says, when I was not a believer, one of the reasons was the Psalms. Because there's some things in the Psalms that I didn't think were right. Why is there so much judgment in the Psalms? People told me this is the worship book. This is this emotional book. And then I get in there and it's all about God judging people. Why are there curses in the Psalms? And we're going to read curses today in the Psalms. How is that right? Am I supposed to curse people? And in the Psalms it happens all the time. So C.S. Lewis says as he was, before he was a believer, he knew his Bible. And even as he was a a believer, as he he was learning more, he struggled with the Psalms. But He takes you in that book and he uses questions. He asks you questions as he's asking the book questions. And he gives you where he found his answers, um, but he takes you along the journey. It's a great book and I'm going to loosely quote from it because I couldn't find my copy. But it is a great book. One of the things you see when you read the Psalms is that if if you really read them, get in there and, and think about them. And I think this is what Lewis was getting to is that they can give you heartburn because they are hot food for the soul. You get in there sometimes and you're like, I'm not sure I can digest what I just... There's a lot of scripture that's like that. But the Psalms in particular, they burn hot at times because they're passionate, they're emotional, uh, they're honest, they're frank, and they're about God. And God is holy. And God will give us heartburn because we're not always ready to handle His holiness and His truth. But we get better diets. That's why we start with milk. Most of us in here... Should be off the milk, and I think are. Uh, so, so go ahead and turn to the 69th Psalm. And a couple of other things about the Psalms. Remember the Psalms, uh, most of the, uh, I should say most, are composed by David. Not all of them. And, and many of them have a heading that says who. Recognize too, the headings are kind of a, um, an interesting thing. They're not considered part of the Psalm, but they're also... Not just a, the headings in your Bible, they're, they're usually set in a different type. They're not just a heading in your Bible that says, like, this is what this section's about. Because most Bibles might have that, or they might reference a verse. The, the Psalms have had these little headings. So that the first line you'll see on the 69th Psalm is, To the choir master, according to the lilies of David. That is not part of the Psalms' song, but it has been with the Psalm as far back as anyone has ever found Scripture of the Psalms have been these instructions. So it says, who wrote this one? Not all, of them, not all of them say that. It also says, according to the lilies, nobody really knows what that means. 
What we think it means is that that's a tune. When Israel read this in the time that it was composed and it was kept in a book of say, this is the songs of worship, they knew what that meant. And it had something to do with how to go about singing this, uh, reciting it. And remember too that the Psalms are composed, many of them are written, particularly this one, deeply personal. So we're going to read this from the perspective of David, but we also have to read it from the perspective of it's put in here not just to think, to memorialize what David wrote. These were used in worship. Every believing Israelite, and many of the non-believers, but those to, for their worship to be true, they were expected to read this, to sing it, to apply it. And we continue that. These are important to us. They also, most of the Psalms, some of the, I should say, some of the Psalms are very clearly messianic. They're talking about a Messiah who will come. They're talking about a Savior. They're talking about Christ. And we know our proof of that is because Jesus says it himself multiple times that all of the prophets and Moses, that is the law, and the Psalms speak of me. He explained it to the, to the men on the road to Emmaus. When he appeared in the upper room, he showed them how all of this was about him. In the New Testament, the Psalms are quoted more than any other Old Testament book. And of the Psalms, the 69th Psalm and the 22nd Psalm are the most quoted Psalms throughout the New Testament. Uh, You will find references to these two Psalms more than all the others, though there's a lot to choose from. So you'll see a lot of Psalms quoted in the New Testament. So let's get started in looking at it. We're just going to take it step by step, section by section. There's kind of a format here of of three parts where David makes a cry out to the Lord. He makes known his need, what's wrong, help me. And then he steps back and he praises the Lord because he knows why he's bringing his petition to the Lord because the Lord is his Savior. And then we'll get into the, perhaps the hardest part of this is which when he, this is called a um, imprecatory psalm. Imprecatory is the fancy word for this is a cursing psalm. And we'll get to that. So let's start in the first verse. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. We'll stop there. So we start, and this is a prayer. And what is this cry? This is the most elemental cry of any of us. Save me, O God. Where else can I go? And then he describes the situation some more. He uses the metaphor of water. Now we're not we're not recalling that that David had gone swimming but wasn't very good at it and this is what he did when he was out in the water. But this is metaphorical language as, as Jerry quoted from Psalm 20 about horses and chariots. If you think, well, I don't have anything to do with horses and chariots so that Psalm doesn't apply for me. No, it's a, it's a metaphor. That's what the water is. And you think of water and throughout the Bible, particularly disturbed waters, deep, deep waters are not usually good things. Israel was a arid land still is. There's beautiful places, but they're not a seagoing people in the Old Testament. The water is, is genuinely looked at, particularly the ocean, as a dark place. It is often used 
They recognize, I'm not talking about taking a drink of water when you're thirsty, but being overwhelmed by the waters, drowning. That's what he's saying. So use this illustration. I sink in deep mire. Water is up to my neck and I can't swim because my feet are in the mud. I'm stuck. There is no standing. The floods overflow me. And then he talks about my response to this is that I'm crying. I'm hurting. I'm crying so much that my throat is dry. My eyes fail. And probably many of you have experienced this personally, your own um, grieving. But to be present when somebody loses a spouse or a child in the agony of a cry that's not like another cry the pain, you feel it because you can hear it. You know the situation's bad, but then just the sound. Imagine the depths of despair. He says, my throat is dry from crying. My eyes fail. They're worn out. Yet he says, I wait for God. So one of the things about the Psalms and that we see in this Psalm is that they're purposefully unspecific. We could spend a lot of time going back through Chronicles and Samuel and Kings and try to figure out, well, what exactly is this situation? Is, is, and, and find some commentaries, and they will. And nobody can be sure, and we don't have to. We don't have to come back and say, well, this is when this guy did this to David, and this was his response. Uh, there are some psalms that say that right in the heading. David wrote this when he was in the cave, running from Saul. This psalm doesn't say this. This psalm, like most of them, is purposefully unspecific. One reason for that is, is that this is a universal application to all Christians, to all Jews in the time that it was written, to all uh, the children of God. This applies to us. We, we, we find ourselves in the same situation. Uh, so we don't, have to, we don't have to think too specifically about what's going on. It's a simple and frank, no holds barred, crying out his emotions. So one thing, this is a prayer. And one thing about prayer is sometimes we have to pray until we really pray. Sometimes we pray and we just, we're kind of like, Here's my need. Let me make it real simple for you, God. Uh, things are rough, and I need you to help me. Okay, I'm not going to doubt the sincerity of that. But when we read what David says here, we know things are rough. He's letting it all out. He's repeating it, not in a vain repetition of saying, if I say it enough times, maybe God will get it. No, he adds to the, the pain. You know more and more. The thing is, we can't hide anything from God. If you come to the Lord, and sometimes you may be hurting, you may be confused, you may be angry, and you think, well, I'm not going to let the Lord know any of that while I'm praying. Does that make any sense? The Lord knows our hearts. He knows them better than we do. He knows what's really going on in our minds. And the one thing about the Psalms is they tend to let you know what's really going on. It's kind of apparent there in the writing. So David turns to God. He has nowhere else to turn to, which is true. He's facing some sort of persecution. In verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. He gives us a little explanation. I'm being accused, I'm being hated without cause. And there's a lot of people that are hating me without cause. They would destroy me, but he says they're wrong. I haven't earned this. He goes, for some reason, I must restore something that I have not stolen. We don't know what that is. And he's going to make a link to that in a minute. Verse 5, he says, he turns and he says, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. 
Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. So back in verse 5 he says, O God, you know my foolishness. So right in verse 4 he's come back and he said, I'm being accused, I'm being hated, and I didn't do anything to deserve it. And then in verse 5 he turns around and he says, but I'm not so unrealistic to realize that I haven't sinned and that I'm without sin. He says, you know, I'm full. My sins are not hidden from you. He confesses his sins. He's not saying this particular sin is obviously why I'm facing this trial. But I recognize, God, that I'm a sinner. And I recognize I need forgiveness. Whatever has happened, David expresses a concern that whatever shame falls on him does not fall on others. So, if we say the church, as a Christian, whatever shame is falling on me, whatever, even if it's false accusations, he says, let not this shame fall on the others. On those who love you, Lord, let them not be ashamed because of me. Let them not be confounded because of me. How often in churches, we see it all the time, too much, do Christians and members of a church, if a pastor or in a family, if a family member falls away or, or sins in some spectacular way, that the family falls away, the church falls away, they lose their faith, they stumble, they are confounded Because of that, David, please, please don't let that happen. He doesn't say that because I'm being falsely accused. Don't let this happen. He's also saying because I'm foolish and you know my sin. Don't let anything fall upon those who wait for you because of me. But then he goes in verse 7. He begins to explain a little bit more of where he's coming from in verses 4. He says, because for your sake I have borne reproach and shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. We'll stop there. Throughout this, you're actually going to hear some scripture. If you know your scripture well, you're going to think, okay, that, that verse is somewhere else in the Bible. And it is. We go back to verse 4. It says, those who, those who hate me without a cause. It's quoted in John 15, 25. The next verse is, is quoted in John. But he says, whatever this suffering is, David acknowledges that this is happening because of you. It's for your sake that I bear reproach. All these things that are happening to me, that I've been wrongfully accused without cause, that I must restore something that I did not steal. This is happening for your sake. Have I borne reproach? This is the why. And this is a big, this is a fundamental thing. If you think in this world that the only reason trials come upon you is because you've done something bad or they come upon somebody else is because they've done something bad, well, that's not biblical. We live in a sin-cursed world and sometimes by trying to do good, and I would say more so, more and more by trying to be good, we will face trials. We will face the reproach. But we do that because we try to serve the Lord. And for your sake, I have borne reproach. That's what David says. He says, I become a stranger, my brothers. He's, whoever he's talking about, they're close. And I think he's talking about either the people in the worship at the temple or all of the people who are turning. Because he, he gives a few more details about who these people are. They're his brothers. Now, it's saying they're physically brothers, but they are his brethren. It'd be like us within the church saying, I've become a stranger to the rest of the church. And I've become an alien to my mother's children. I've become an alien to my true brothers. In verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David says, because... I love you, Lord, and I honor your word, and I take you seriously. This has come upon me. 
Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Turn to John 2.17 if you'd like. Hold your place there. This is shortly after Jesus begins his ministry. He is after his first miracle. And remember, he goes into the temple. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So here we have an explanation of what's going on relating David as this type, this figure who we can begin to get a glimpse of the Messiah through, who is not the Messiah, but is a type. And then we have Christ who is the Messiah. Zeal for your house will consume me. When, when that was applied to Christ, what had he done? He'd cleaned out the temple, but what had it caused? He was passionate. That's that consumed me. If you think, well... That guy's so into this, it consumes him. He's so into football, or they're so into this sport, or they're so into whatever hobby, it consumes them. What he was so into was his father's glory, and it consumed him. But it would also consume him, and that this is what set things in motion among the leaders to get rid of Jesus. And whatever has happened to David, it's the same thing. Whatever zeal, whatever act has been, it has been because he loves the Lord. The reproaches, those who reproach the Lord, those who do not honor the Lord... In David's eyes, he has been dishonored in this too. They've fallen on him. He takes God seriously. He could not stand that God not be honored. The same applied to Christ and the same should apply to us. Now, how we follow through on that may be different. Turn to Romans 15.3. And I'll start in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay, well there's, he's quoting from this same scripture, he just took the second half of verse 9. Paul, applying it to Christ, and saying that should apply to us too, but not in the way of us going and turning over the tables, but of us bearing, go back to verse 1 in Romans 15, those who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves, but to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. So in this same psalm, we have this example of Christ in two ways. And one is that his zeal for the Lord was that he could not stand for the Lord to be dishonored. Second is that he bore that dishonor. Christ bore the dishonor of the Lord. He didn't wipe away the whole world because the whole world dishonored the Lord. He went to the cross to bear up. And as Christians, we must bear one another in our weaknesses, in their weaknesses. Verse 10, let's keep going. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. So here we have three examples of of David's repentance, you know, in Israel in, under the law. And if you look in the Old Testament commonly, if you, it was a public way of repenting to be in sackcloth. Fasting was a way of repentance and prayer and devotion, as it still is. And what David says is that when I was fasting, they mocked me for it. When I made sackcloth my garment, they mocked me for it. And his repentance is visible, but he's mocked for it. 
this gives us some more, another clue as to who these people are. They are the other, they are the people of God who know what these things mean. He's not in a foreign nation and they're mocking him for his uh, devotion to the Lord. Uh, these people are in sin in their relationship to worship. It's the leaders. It goes all the way to the top because he says, those who sit in the gate speak against me for I am the song of the drunkards. You could say, okay, well, the drunkards sit at the gate, and that's true. Often it's the, we have examples of those, the lame, the blind, being at the gate as people would come in. But we also kind of have this strong, throughout the Bible, those who sit at the gate are the elders, the judge. Throughout, when you're reading the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see, when you see that, you have to look at it and say, well, what does it mean here? In the ancient Near East, it was common. It's explained in the Bible that the elders were at the gate. If you had an issue, you took it to the elders. And where did you go? You didn't go to City Hall. You went to the gate. That's where they were. And he's saying, those who sit in the gate speak against me. And I am the song of the drunkards. So, verse 13, he goes back and he makes another plea. So, this is like verse 1. We're almost repeating now this pattern. But as for me, my prayer is to you. Stop there. David, he started a prayer and then he's made a case and explained how deep things are, how bad things are, and who these people are that are against him. And then he says, but let's put all that aside. My prayer is to you, Lord. I've pointed that out to you, to me, to the people, to all of the future that will read this psalm. My prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. So we go to, to the Lord in our need when we're drowning, when we're hurting. And we make our cry. My prayers to you, Lord, save me. David says, in your acceptable time, that's a hard prayer. And he's, he's actually going to say something different here in a minute. But he says both these things. He says, in your acceptable time, he recognizes that God answers prayers on his timetable in his way. He hears our prayers. He knows our need. He's always working. His sovereign will and omniscience rules over all things. And David's recognizing that. He says, oh, Lord, in the acceptable time, in the multitude of your mercy, because he recognizes the multitudinous mercy of God, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me, verse 14, out of the mire. You recall verse 1 and 2. And let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, let not, or, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. He reverses this, everything he set up in one and two. Now he says, Lord, fix these things. Save me from these things, and I know that you can. Verse 16, hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. In this prayer now, like our prayers should be, David begins to glorify the Lord by explaining the attributes, how he knows the Lord to be. He said, I'm in some deep problems here, but Lord, in your love, all these words, we're going to highlight them as it keeps going. Your loving kindness is good. God is good. God is love. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. God is merciful in unending ways. 17, do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Where he said, O Lord, in the acceptable time, now he says, hear me speedily. 
So he's being honest. He's human. He says, and, and, and this is not unlike what Christ says. Deliver me, Lord, if there be any other way, but not my will, but thine. Hear me speedily. He is, his desperation is there, and that's okay. 18, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. So we have two more words here. We've said loving kindness, multiple mercies. Redeem me. Deliver me. All these are cries to the Lord, the one who can do these things. And David knows that he needs to be redeemed. He knows he needs to be delivered. Verse 19. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. And stop there. Again, we get to God's omniscience, the fancy word that God knows all things. <clears throat> he sees all things. He knows all things. David knows that about the Lord. He's been reminded of it. You see it throughout the Psalms. He says, you know what's happening to me. You know my shame. And shame is a big deal in this culture. It's a big deal in a lot of Eastern cultures in a different way than we are used to understanding shame. Um, his dishonor. In this line, I, I just, my adversaries are all before you. Okay, so let's make this application to Christ now. What happens to Christ at the cross? Shame, dishonor, reproach. He's mocked. And what does Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Implied in that sentence is that you do. You know what they think. I know what they think. And if we think of ourselves... And I think what's good in the Psalms, here's where our default is in lots of the Bible. We read about David and we think, okay, well, I'm David and these are the things going on in the world. Well, sometimes we're not David, we're the things going on to David. Or there's aspects of us because we're still sinners. And sometimes when David is a type, when he is a type of Christ, well, Christ is not the sinner. Christ is the hero then the sinners are us. Even the saved. Sometimes as we look at these, we have to be careful to not put ourselves as the hero of these stories. So when we say, my adversaries are all before you, from the point of David, he's saying that you know everything. You know what's going on. You know how I feel. And you know what's in their hearts. And that's true from our adversaries. We have to go to the Lord and say, you know, Lord, what's going on. I trust you know, and I know, you know what's in their hearts more than I do. Sometimes we have to say, you know what's in this heart more than I do. And that's true. He knows our hearts more than we know them. In verse 20, so, so don't think that God doesn't know about our problems. He does. And don't think you can get away with something from God. You can't. 20, reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So in verse 20, 
He's kind of finishing this complaint, this holy complaint. Uh, All this reproach, this has broken my heart. I'm exhausted. I'm at my wit's end. I'm full of heaviness. I've looked for somebody to show me pity and for comfort. There's no one but you, Lord. Now, what's a challenge to that for us? We have people in our church, if you look around in this room, when we go to the auditorium, you look around, people that are facing, and there's people now, I may be talking directly to you, who are facing trials, whether they be uh, like David, this, these false accusations, this undeserved hate, or it may be health, or maybe financial, that are hurting, and they're looking for help, they're looking for pity, and they're looking for comfort. And they are surrounded by brethren, the brothers and sisters are surrounded by the church. Let us not be like David's brethren who did not show him pity or comfort. We have to be tuned to love one another. Otherwise, these curses fall on us. And where we're about to hit, we don't want these curses to fall on us, but they have been actually fallen on our Savior. Verse 21, if you go to Matthew 27, Luke 23, we'll just go to Matthew 27. You've heard these. They also gave me gall for my food. Remember when Jesus is on the cross? Verse 34. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And gall is one of those things we're not quite sure exactly what they're replying to a gall. Some commentaries will tell you they know exactly, but gall throughout the Bible is not yummy. It's bitter. It's either poisonous directly in the, in the teaching or it's bitter. Whatever it is, it was such that when Jesus at, was thirst and he knew there was gall in there, he would not drink it. Gall is bitter. And then vinegar. I think this translation says vinegar. It's sour wine. You have something that's probably both bitter and acidic. And he says it's, it's the fulfilling of scripture. I've, I've heard this and throughout my life at times people say, well, this is, they're, being, they're showing pity on Christ and they give him something to drink and that was for his health. There's long, people have written long things about that. But based off the Old Testament, based off of this psalm, this was done to mock Christ. And it was done to mock David. When he thirsted, they gave him bitter, they gave him bitterness. When he was hungry, they made his food bitter. They didn't do that for his good. To see that in the middle of this psalm goes against the whole rest of the psalm. So I think as we look at the New Testament, as we look at Christ, I think we have to keep this in mind. He quotes this psalm. It wasn't done for for Jesus' good. And Jesus knew he would suffer. He would not be relieved by something that would knock him out, as some some would say. So he says no. Then we turn to the curses, verse 22. And this is where, like I said, C.S. Lewis, this is where a lot of people get hung up on the Psalms because they say, okay, well, now we're cursing people. Am I supposed to, you know, follow David's example? Verse 22. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, 
and not be written with the righteous. I don't know if you've got young kids or grandkids. Everybody likes a good burn when they're young. And adults, you know, ooh, that was, that was harsh. Kids really love it. They, talk, they like to burn each other. So much so that then they get mad at each other. You know, then they have to make up eventually and become friends again. But everybody just likes a good burn, a good dig. Boy, you don't get much more of a harshness of judgment of somebody than what David has written right here. He's repetitive. Um, six verses here. What can we say about this? It does seem wrong for us when Jesus has called us to put away the sword. When Jesus has called us to turn the other cheek. To love your enemies. Is that what David is doing here? So there's a couple of errors we can make in this. We can look at this and we can read the psalm and say, well, the rest of the psalm is good and the end's going to be good, but I'm just going to dismiss this part. That's Old Testament David. He's being harsh. He's a sinner. No, we can't dismiss it that way. We shouldn't do that. The other thing is for us to take it and run with it and say, like, let's curse them all. Let's bring down fire upon our enemies. Like the Old Testament prophet. Let's, you know, God, you, you told us how to do it right here. These people that are against us, these people that give us a challenge here in the 21st century church in Midland, Texas, in Kelview Heights, maybe it's somebody in this class that we don't like very well. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Add iniquity to their iniquity. No, that, that's not the right way to take this down either. One thing is that to be safe is don't apply this to a person. Don't read this and think, let Susie's dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in her tent. No, that's, that's bitterness. That's a wrath that we're not to bear. What is right, though, is that the judgment of these verses is appropriate for the sin of the people they're against. It is an appropriate response of God's judgment against the sinful actions of God's enemies. And David is not wrong to pray for it. And it comes true. All of this comes true in, in stages. Some of it is yet to be completed. We can read in Revelation. Revelation 16.1 begins, Pour out the bowls of your wrath. It's continuing this request of David. And you know who's involved in that? Jesus. He is our Savior, but He is also our Judge. And he is, to those who are under judgment, he is fearful. So much so that what brought us to not be under this judgment? The death of Christ. Christ bore these curses. So, and you see that in the New Testament. One of these that's mentioned, and this one's kind of tricky because it's added, it's, it's, it's about Christ, yet it's also mentioned, Peter makes it about Judas. He says, let their dwelling place be desolate and no one live in their tents. Pour out your indignation. Who had more indignation poured out on them? Christ than anyone else. God's wrath Christ bore. Now, not all of them. Jesus had no iniquity in himself, but what did he bear? All iniquity. He became sin for us. And he was 
blotted out of the book of the living, but he lived again and lives again. So let's move on and we'll finish this one up. These are not just David's enemies. They're the enemies of God. And as we think, okay, well, how do I play this now? Well, we are to love our enemies, but we still recognize that people, even people, leaders, those who are quite different from us in religious belief and practice or lifestyle, they are not our enemies. Our enemies are Satan and spiritual powers. And our war against them is the gospel and is conversion of sinners. Every time a sinner comes to Christ is another defeat of Satan, who is ultimately defeated, but you know that he hates it. So we don't apply this to a person. We apply it to the spiritual forces. We apply it to Satan. We leave God to judge, as does David here. So to finish this up, we'll go over the last few verses. 29. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. Notice that who he's addressing just changed there. You who seek God. This has been a prayer to God and suddenly, well, it's not. It's, this is a psalm. Remember? This is for the people. And he says in verse 33, For the Lord hears the poor. He does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So we go from these cursings. We have the beginning where he makes his plea. We have this cursing. The judgment to recognize God, call down judgment on the, on the sin of the world. And then he turns to worship. This doxology, this praise. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Somehow, between save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, in explaining his need, in knowing who he's taking his need to, David, the psalmist, has gone from this desperation to this joyful worship. I will magnify him with thanksgiving, and this will please the Lord better than all these things. The humble shall see this and be glad. As we look into the Psalms, like I said, they, they can be complex. It's good to dig into them and look at what do they mean. If we look to Jesus, what did Jesus face? He bore these curses. He was falsely accused. His zeal for God's glory was mocked. He bore it on the cross. He rose again. And he empowers us to live lives of people that have been in the grave, risen again. Waiting for the day, as this psalm finishes, when we will all be in Zion together in glory. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us to know it. Help us to apply it. Lord, as we go now to worship, help us to worship you as our Savior, as the one we cry to, as the one who grabs us from the bottom of the depths of the sea 
and pulls us out. Both in salvation, Lord, and continually as we stumble, as we fight, as we fall back into sin, as we stumble in temptation, Lord, we know that you are there to lift us up. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love one another, to not be like the enemies of God, but to be like David, to be like Christ, to be willing to give it all, to bear the curses so that people would know you, Lord. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen.